0: Good morning, church. It is always good to be with you. Uh, If you guys have your Bibles, please be opening to uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. And I've entitled this message, A People Committed to the Lord. Well, probably like several of you in here, I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. My parents were pretty strict, and though they didn't go as far as writing out all of the rules of the household, uh, my brothers and I knew very well what was expected of us, of what was considered right and what was considered wrong. We knew what was strictly forbidden in our home. Our dad made that really quite clear. Uh, Most of our friends, though, did not grow up in these kinds of households. Uh, Most of our friends uh, were tied up, their parents were tied up in the business world. And so I went to a private school in Costa Rica. We were given a grant to be able to go to this school. And so it was a very wealthy school. And what that meant was a lot of our friends had parents that were both working in the workforce. And what that meant was that a lot of the times these kids were left at home alone with seemingly endless freedoms. And as a kid, I was really quite envious of these things. My my friends didn't have curfews. They didn't have bedtimes. They were allowed to hang out and have sleepovers, even on uh, school nights. My friends went to all kinds of parties and social events on the weekends, and our weekends were really tied up with church events. And so I remember as a kid, I was really quite resentful of my parents because of these rules. I gave them quite a bit of grief over these things, I accused them of being too strict and being a joy kill and not allowing me to have the kind of fun that I saw my friends having. But one day when I was in 10th or 11th grade, I was over at one of my friends' house for dinner. One of these friends that I was really quite envious of. And we're sitting there for dinner and I was struck by how my friend addressed his parents. There was no respect. There was no love. There was no concern for their feelings. He was really quite demeaning in how he addressed them. And really what struck me the most was that there was no correction on the parents' end. Not from either one of them. When we finished up our dinner, we went back to his room. And I remember questioning him about this. I said, don't, don't your parents correct you? Don't they discipline you for these things? And I remember word for word his response no, my parents don't care about me. They don't care what I do. It was at that moment where my feelings of jealousy and envy for his position was moved to a great appreciation for my parents. It was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I was able to see clearly for the first time That my parents' rules were not because they didn't love me. It was not because they were trying to keep joy from me, but it was really quite the opposite. They wanted what was best for me. And so they disciplined me. They gave me rules because they loved me and they cared for me. And though my heart was desirous of all these fleeting pleasures that my friends had, and though I accused them time and time again of keeping joy from me, my parents knew best. They wanted to raise me to know the Lord and they wanted me to walk in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to him. Well, as we've been studying through the last few chapters of Nehemiah and as these Israelites have been studying through the scriptures and reflecting back on God's grace in their lives, in particular chapter 9, they seem to recognize that their ancestors missed the whole point of the covenant. Their ancestors seemed to be a people that constantly resented God's law, like I resented my parents' rules. This generation in Nehemiah's time looked at their ancestors and looked at God's gracious dealings with them over and over and over again. From the very beginning of creation up until this present generation, and they saw that God's law was good. It wasn't A thing to be mocked. It was not a thing to be scorned. His discipline was not out of anger. It was not out of resentment. It was not out of hatred. But it was given in love to lead them in paths of righteousness and blessing, and an abundant life with Him. And so as they look back on their history and they look back on their ancestors who kind of scorned God's laws, what we're going to see today in chapter 10 is they are going to flee far from the example set before them by their parents. They are going to join together in a public assembly as one body, and rather than resent God's law, they are going to make a covenant to keep the covenant. It's kind of this really cool situation. They look at God's law and they say, we are going to be your people, and we are going to be those that will upkeep your rules, your statutes, and your commands. Well, before we jump in, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are a good God, and your commands are good. Lord, your rules and your statutes and your law is good. Father, your scriptures are good. Father, we confess sometimes that we look at these things that you have commanded in the scriptures, and sometimes we have sinfully viewed them as burdensome. God, but I pray that you would give us a heart that sees them for the good things that they are. Lord, you instruct, you give commands, you've given your word so that we might have life. Lord, and so I pray that today as we look at these people who are those that are going to dedicate themselves to you by upholding your law. God, I pray that you would stir up in us a desire to do the same. Father, that we would be a people that sees your word as good. Father, that we would seek to honor you not just with our lips, but with our actions as well. And so we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, our text today is broken up into really two quite nice sections for us. And the first section we're really not going to spend that much time in. Uh, is going to be a list of these people that gather and write their names on this covenant to kind of uphold the covenant of the Old Testament and that's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 27 but the second section is going to be the covenant obligations that they're really going to focus upon and that they're going to put upon themselves and that's really where we're going to spend the bulk of our time but let's let's begin by looking at those who signed their names to the covenant in verses 1 through 28. And I apologize for how I'm going to butcher some of these names. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah. Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah. Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Messiah, Bilgai, Shemiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benwi of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalidah, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachor, Sherabiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Benenu, the chiefs of the people. Parash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Bebai. Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azwer, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshizabel, Zadok, Jadwa, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Helohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Messiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, Bannon, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. And Nehemiah loves lists, doesn't he? We see them over and over and over again. And as God's people, who have just finished praying back in chapter 9, are now gathered as one of God's people, what they're going to do is they're going to sign this covenant that they're going to be making before God. And so who are these individuals Well, it starts with those who are the political leaders of the land. We obviously know who Nehemiah is, but this guy Zedekiah is one of Nehemiah's right-hand men, it seems. We're going to see his name pop up later on in Scripture. Uh, And he is a guy that seems to be a scribe, and he's partly the reason why we have the book of Nehemiah, because he seems to write the words that Nehemiah dictates to him. And next goes from these governors of the land, the leaders, the political heads of the land, to those who are the spiritual leaders of the land. These are the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. And what's interesting about these names that we're going to see with these priests is that there's at least 15 of them that are actually tied back to the first generation that came back when Cyrus first issued the decree back in Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2. These guys that returned some 100 years before Nehemiah's generation. And so as they are writing this covenant to the Lord and as they are going to be those that write their names seeking to honor God, they're also going to include these guys that died Some 50 plus years ago. Almost as honorary members for their faithfulness in the past. And as you read these names, you might recognize that six or seven of these guys were also those that were involved in the teaching of the law back in chapter 8. These are some of the ones that were also involved with the singing of songs and leading God's people in prayer and in worship. These are people who are not only on the front lines leading the people to worship God, what we're going to see is that they are going to be the ones that lead by example in dedicating their names to God in this list. In verses 14 through 27, we see 44 different names listed. 21 of them are also ancestral names. These guys that came back from the very beginning of those that first returned. Thirteen of these names include those that were working on the wall back in Nehemiah chapter 3. And four of these names were Ezra's lay leaders that were part of his team. The rest of the people in verse 28 tells us that this is not an exhaustive list. As they're looking at God's people that are covenanting themselves to God, there are more names than these that are listed most scholars think that even some of these people would be those who are non-Israelites. There would be people who had separated themselves from the people of the lands. These that had dedicated themselves to Yahweh and had forsaken the idolatry of their people. And so we might look at this list. We might think, why on earth does it matter? Why do we read a list like this? Why is there a public assembly like this? Why does this matter to us in Louisville, Kentucky some 2100 years later? Actually, longer than that, later. I know. As we look at this, I think one thing that we should notice is that these people are gathering in a very public assembly with one another. They're inviting accountability between themselves God, and one another. It's the governors there, the Levites are there, the priests are there, the peoples of the lands are there, the chiefs are there, the husbands are there, the wives are there, the fathers are there, the mothers are there, the children are there, and they are all gathered as one people making sure that they are covenanting themselves before God. It is super Apparent that these people saw that their faith was not just this individualistic faith that you and I talk about here in Western America. They view this faith, this covenant community, as something that is communal. The scriptures make that abundantly clear all throughout both Old and New Testaments. But here in the West, what so often we talk about is our own personal relationship with jesus christ make no mistake we each have a very personal relationship with jesus each of us must confess jesus as lord but what the scriptures very clearly depict is that we are not saved to be individuals walking with christ we are those that are saved individually to be built into a spiritual body one another working together for the glory of the lord Remember 1 Peter chapter 2, he says that brick by brick he has saved you to build you into a spiritual house for him. Think about the accountability that we see in Jesus' instruction to the church when sin arises. They're supposed to deal with it as a body of believers. If one person is unwilling to repent when a person confronts them, they're supposed to go and gather more from the body. And if those two people can't get that person to repent, they're supposed to go grab another one. And if that doesn't happen, then the whole church is to hold this person accountable. Be reminded of James's instruction for believers to walk confessing their sins to one another. You know, I've heard it said so many times in our culture that we are accountable to God and no one else. But those that say that have either neglected to read the scriptures or have completely disregarded their instruction altogether. I think a major reason why we see such a prevalence of anemic Christianity in the West is because we don't invite this accountability that we see in a corporate gathering of God's people. Are you serious about following Jesus? Then you should be serious about seeking accountability from God's people in the body that you worship with. God uses it to purify us and to conform us into the image of his son. And so all of these people are gathered and they're writing their names down. And they're making a public profession of faith accountable to one another. What is it that they vow? Let's keep reading. Verse 29 says, these people, all those names that we just list, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. As I read that, you guys probably were stuck on one little phrase there. That curse and an oath that is mentioned there in verse 29. And so as these people take a vow to follow in obedience to all of God's law, what they're actually also doing is they're inviting God's judgment on their life if they fail to uphold God's law. That might seem really, really strange to us. Not often do we look at people and say, I'm inviting you to bring judgment on me if I disobey you. We don't go to our parents and say, "God, my, or not God Mom and Dad, I'm going to follow your rules, but I invite you to spank me if I don't. Right? I don't think Titus has ever said that to me as, Dad, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to you, but please spank me if I disobey and I hit my brother. That's never happened in our home, and that's probably never happened with you guys. But what these people are doing is they are looking back on the Scriptures, and they're looking back when God had originally given the covenant to them. He didn't just promise blessing. He didn't just say, follow me and I'm going to bless you as my people. You're going to experience this land that is flowing with milk and honey and prosperity. And I'm going to make you guys prosper in abundance. God also promised judgments. Go to Deuteronomy 27 and 28 if you're taking notes. Make sure you guys check those chapters out. It promises all of these blessings, but it also promises curses for disobedience. And so as these people are covenanting together, they're holding each other accountable. And they're also going with a serious disposition before God. And they're saying, God, we want to be faithful to you. We want to obey you. We want to be your covenant people. But we also invite you to discipline us if we fall short. We are your people. We want to experience your blessing. But we also understand that that also comes with curses for disobedience. Again, I can't help but notice the accountability that they're submitting themselves to with God and with one another. Well, even though we see very clearly that they're submitting themselves to all of the different commands and statutes of God's law that we see in verse 29. What we're going to see is that they're going to really kind of focus on three different commitments that they're going to make. There, these commitments that we're gonna see are commitments and failures that their people had failed time and time and time again to do throughout their history. And so commitment number one is what we see in verse 30. And this is a commitment to honor the Lord in their homes. They're, they're not going to intermarry with these people of the land. Read with me in verse 30. It says this. It says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. Or take their daughters for our sons. When God first brought his people into the promised land, he warned them. He told them, he commanded them that if they were not to drive the people out of the lands, that these people would be a thorn in their side. That instead of experiencing the blessing of being God's covenant people in a perfect fellowship relationship with God, they would be driven astray by the idolatrous ways of these foreigners in the land. And so when they are committing this, it's not that these Israelites are racists against other people. It's not that they're trying to preserve a a, a royal line, an ethnic person, an ethnic group That is supposed to be more superior than these other nations. Instead, this has always been about a spiritual motivated cause. It's about preserving a line of faith within God's people. It's about separating themselves from those that will not worship Yahweh. And will continue to walk in idolatrous practices. And so as these Israelites reflected back in chapter 9 on their history and their ancestors and the failing of their people to actually obey God's rules and statutes and straying far away from intermarriage, what they actually started to notice was that their people time and time and time again fell into these sinful practices. In Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 27 through 28, they highlighted the period of the judges. And if you know anything about the period of the judges, that was a period of rampant sin of God's people failing to drive out the people of the land and instead forcing these people of the land into forced labor and then also marrying with the people of the land and chasing after their idolatrous ways. And God looks at them and he uses really choice language. He says, you were whoring after these foreign gods. You've committed adultery against me by pursuing and prostituting yourselves after these wicked gods. And it wasn't just that one period where God's people were unfaithful and intermarrying with these people of the lands. In Nehemiah 9.26, they also highlight the period of the king's. And they mentioned the great blasphemies that were committed and these kings that stiffened their neck. And even though they don't mention them specifically by name, no doubt they have kings like King Ahab in mind who married Jezebel. Or King Joram who married Athala. Or King Manasseh who took on many foreign wives. And not only did these kings start falling into idolatrous ways themselves, they started leading the entire nation of Israel and Judah into these idolatrous ways. They started putting temples all around for the Baals. They started removing these sacred articles from the temple and started putting these false idols in the temple. They started making their people worship in the high places throughout the lands. And they also started instituting child sacrifice within the lands. And the result of this unfaithfulness, as we saw last chapter, was that God was faithful and God was patient and he sent the prophets to warn his people to abstain from doing this and to return back to the covenants. And yet after hundreds of years, they stiffened their neck and they continued to fall into idolatry. And so now here in chapter 10, as these people look back on their history. And they look back on their unfaithfulness of their ancestors. What they're vowing to do is they're saying, we are not going to fall into the same mistakes as our fathers did. No matter how enticing these marriages might be, whether political reasons, monetary reasons, or even just physical beauty, these Israelites vow to honor their Lord in their homes with these marriages. Commitment number two we see in verse 31. They don't just commit themselves to honor the God in their homes. They also commit themselves to honor God with their business activities, specifically by honoring the Sabbath. Read verse 31. It says this, And if the people of the lands bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exact exaction of every debt. So there's multiple parts to this Sabbath honoring. The first is they were supposed to honor this weekly Sabbath that was a day that was supposed to be set out to the Lord. As far as we know, Israel was the only nation at this time that actually practiced a weekly Sabbath. It was a mark of the covenant. It was something that was supposed to distinguish them. It was something that was supposed to set them apart from all of the foreigners of the land. A lot of times we just think, oh, it's not about working. It's about all these different things that we saw in the New Testament that they're not supposed to pick up a mat and walk, and they're not supposed to pick stuff out of the grain fields. And those were things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees added to the Sabbath that was not really a part of the original documents, the original commands given to God's people. Instead, this was a gift that God gave to his people. It was a gift calling them to rest. It was a gift calling them to abstain from work. It was a gift calling them to trust in the Lord and his provisions for them on a weekly basis. While all of these enemy peoples of the lands were busy at work over and over and over again trying to sustain their families, this gift of the Sabbath was a gift where God's people could rest and trust that God was the one that was going to provide and sustain them. Notice what God says to them in Isaiah 58. It says this, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord, honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own delights or pleasures or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Again, these Israelites in Nehemiah 9 recognize, or Nehemiah 10 recognized that this was a point of struggle and contention for their people. God's people throughout their history did not view this day as a gift from God. Time and time again, they didn't cease from working. They didn't set the day aside as holy. They didn't gather to worship God on a day that he had gifted them to rest. Instead, they started pursuing the idolatrous ways of their own hearts. They started trusting in their own understanding and tried to provide for their own families. And as God recounts Israel's history... Through the prophet Ezekiel, this a chapter that we're going to be looking at. He just notes how often that they had broken this Sabbath. Read with me, Ezekiel chapter 20. And just notice how many times, I've got it up here for you guys to see. Notice how many times he starts talking about them breaking the Sabbath. Ezekiel 20. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them. That they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Verse 16, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes, and profaned my Sabbaths, for their hearts went after their idols. Verse 21, they did not walk in my statutes, and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Verse 24, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Why does God repeat this over and over and over again? It's not just their idolatry that He is judging them for, it's not just their child sacrifices that led them to this exile. It's not just because they abandoned the temple and didn't upkeep the temple and failed to sacrifice according to God's law. He he lets them know over and over again that one of the main reasons that they were exiled into Babylon is because they failed to honor the Sabbath. They failed to be a people set apart unto him. And they were exiled for it. And so here in Nehemiah 10, what they're doing is they're saying, we are not going to follow in the footsteps of our fathers. They didn't think the Sabbath was that big of a deal. We are going to be a people that honor this day and set it apart as holy. And what's so fascinating is that this law never, it never forbade them from buying or purchasing food from Foreigners on the Sabbath, these people apparently didn't even want to come flirting close to breaking the Sabbath. They don't want to fall back in those idolatrous ways. And so they take it upon themselves to say, we're not even going to come close to breaking this Sabbath, Lord. We're not even going to buy them if they come into our land and sell food to us. In addition to honoring this weekly Sabbath, they vow to honor, honor the Sabbath year as well. And you're going to notice that in verse 31. We will forgo the crops of the seventh year. Most of us don't even realize that there is actually a sabbatical year that was supposed to be taking place. We've heard about this weekly Sabbath, but you might be reading this for the first time and say, what, there's a sabbatical year? What is this supposed to be? And the reason that we don't know much about it is because we never really see it explicitly practiced in the Old Testament. Maybe God's people upheld it, but maybe they didn't. So, Leviticus 25 actually gives instructions on what the sabbatical year was supposed to look like. And rather than read the whole chapter, I'm going to just summarize to you the the, the different parts to it. The first part of the sabbatical year was that on every seventh year, they were supposed to cease from working the land. They weren't supposed to plant crops, they weren't supposed to till the ground. They weren't supposed to reap. They weren't supposed to sow. Even if crops grew without them doing any work, God says, uh uh-uh, uh, do not grab those crops. <laughs> if you were to think about this from a practical, human, earthly standpoint, this looks like utter foolishness, doesn't it? Imagine yourself as a business owner, a farmer. Every seven years, you're supposed to let your land just wait and just not plant. You're not supposed to do any type of work on it. It seems like it would just be an entire waste of a year's profits. Think if you were a small landowner. Think if you were dependent on the land that you owed to provide for your kids. You struggle almost every year to make ends meet. And now on the seventh year, you're supposed to not do anything in the land and provide for your people. Think from a government, societal standpoint. No fields planted or sown or reaped on that same sabbatical year. This looks like supply chain issues like galore. This looks like high inflation rates. This looks like utter foolishness from an earthly standpoint. This is not God calling his people to practice you know, fasting for a year. It's not going to be a year of famine. Rather, this sabbatical year was a test to their faith. Notice what he says in Leviticus 25. And If you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessings on you in the sixth year, so that It will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives. And so God says, you're going to practice this sabbatical year. Every seven years, you're not going to plant anything. And I'm not going to just let you starve. I'm not going to just let you die in famine. What I'm going to do is if you trust me, if you trust in my provision, I am going to bless you abundantly. For three years, I'm going to bless you off of the grain from that one year of crop. Perhaps even more difficult was what they were also required to do. And that's at the end of verse 31. And at the Sabbath year, they're also to exact every debt. So every seventh year that a debt has been made, whatever money was owed to the lender is now canceled. So if I borrow money from Miko... And after six years, I'm unable to pay Miko back. Miko is to forgive every single penny that I owe him. (laughs) The question is, why? Why on earth would, first of all, God command this? And why on earth would anybody ever lend money to anybody in a society like this? If you remember, these Israelites can't exact interest when they lend money to one another. They're not supposed to treat each other like loan sharks. And so if they can't exact interest, and after every seventh year they run the risk of losing the debt that is owed to them, why on earth would they ever lend money to anybody in need? Again, this was all about them trusting in the Lord. Walking in faithful commitment in a covenant relationship with God... And with one another. It caused borrowers to borrow in an ethical way from the lenders. They they couldn't borrow with the intention of saying, I'm never gonna pay that sucker back. It caused lenders to really care for the needs of their brothers and sisters. They weren't to be money sharks. They weren't to be oppressive. They weren't supposed to be trying to make a profit off of one another. They were supposed to be lending because it was God's money to begin with. And they're supposed to be providing for their brothers that went without. This, again, was a mark for God's people to be set apart. That's what this whole Sabbath was about. And can you think of another practice that would have set God's people apart from the people of the world? Saying, okay, I'm going to borrow money with every intention of paying you back, and I'm going to lend you money, not making a profit off of you, and I'm willing to cancel every single debt that's owed to me if you run into any type of financial difficulties. The world must have looked at them as a people that were crazy, crazy in love with each other and trusting in God. And so these people make a commitment to honor the Lord with their business practices. To trust in God's provisions. To trust that God would provide the money for them. That God would be the one that would provide the food from them from the lands. Commitment number three is what we see in verses 32 through 39. And there's so much to unpack from these. But we're just going to make a couple notes from them. The people commit themselves to be invested in the ministry at the temple. Read with me verses 32 and 33. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly, a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, the appointed feast, the holy things, the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house. Of our God. Notice these people aren't just committing to make sure that these sacrifices are going to continue to be done. They're committing to financially be those that are invested in these sacrifices. They recognize that this temple that they have rebuilt in the land of Jerusalem wasn't just some pretty building, this national monument, this thing to look at. The entire purpose of the temple, the entire purpose of the covenant was so that God could dwell among his people. God promised that he was going to dwell in the temple among his people. And if they wanted to not die because of the holiness of God, they needed to make sacrifices day after day, year after year to atone for their sins. And though their ancestors allowed the temple to fall into a state of disrepair time and time and time again, again, these exiles are saying, not us. We're not going to follow in the wickedness of our parents. We're not going to forsake the spiritual health of our people. We are going to be a people, despite the financial difficulty of the Persian tax that is upon us, we are going to be a people committed to honoring the Lord by upkeeping these sacrifices so we can be in covenant relationship with Him. Notice verse 34. It's not just the people that are committed to being faithful and providing these sacrifices. The priests and the Levites also commit themselves to do faithful service in the temple. Verse 34. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God, according to our Father's houses. And notice, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So they cast lots. From all the people to provide these wood offerings, these burnt offerings on the the altar. But these temple servants, these priests, these Levites are those that vow to make sure that they uphold all of these sacrifices according to the law as it is written, as it has been given by God. You might think, well this kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? This is kind of the role of a priest in a and a temple servant in the Levite. This was their job. This was their responsibility. Of course that they're going to covenant themselves to doing this. But again, their history is filled with a lot of unfaithful priests. Think back on Eli's sons. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Think about King Jeroboam. Who appointed an entire false tribe of priests to offer false sacrifices in a false place of worship in the nation of Israel think about Jeremiah's address in Jeremiah 23 where he addresses the entire covenant community of Judah and he says you guys have forsaken the temple sacrifices and he condemns the priests primarily these priests say not us our people have a history of rebelling Our people of priests have a history of rebelling. Not us. We are going to be a faithful people that offer sacrifices to you. Notice the third thing that they also commit themselves is in verses 35 through 38. They commit themselves to provide financially for the workers of the house of God as well. Verse 35. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree. Year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring to the first of our dough and of our contributions the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, And the priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers. Where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. When I first read this, I thought all of these different things that they were bringing were all things that were supposed to be offered on the altar and to the Lord. But what they're actually committing to do is to honor these tithes and offerings that God had really established to provide for the, the needs of the workers, of the priests, of the Levites in the temple. I think I've got it for you guys in Numbers chapter 18. It kind of explains this. That these Levites and these priests weren't supposed to have um, an inheritance from the Lord. They didn't have a land that was dedicated to them. They survived based off of the faithfulness of God's people providing for them. Verse Numbers 18 says this. To the Levites, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do. Their service in the tent of meeting. So, that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear the iniquity. It shall be a perpetual state throughout your generations among the people of Israel. They shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. And so, what God's people are vowing to do here in Nehemiah chapter 10 is not just to provide financially for the upkeep of the temple. It's not just these temple servants that are vowing to be faithful servants unto God in the temple. It's God's people vowing to financially shepherd and provide for the workers of God's people in the house of the Lord. They see this as something that is necessary for the spiritual health of their people. They're not going to neglect it like their previous generations had. If they want to continue walking in a covenant relationship with God, if they want their sins to be atoned for, if they want to continue enjoying the benefit of enjoying God's presence, these people must be able to faithfully work in the temple. And so in Nehemiah chapter 10, they take it upon themselves. I say, we're going to provide for them. We are going to do what God's law required of us. And we are going to make sure that God's servants can continue to minister in the house. So there you have it. God's people gathered as one people, making a covenant to keep the covenant, vowing to be committed to the Lord in their marriages and at home, in their business practices with honoring the Sabbath, honoring the Lord with the temple worship, committing to separate themselves from the peoples of the land and committing to be a people that follow the instructions of God. And though we're no longer in the Old Covenant, we are a New Covenant people, I think there is a lot of practical instruction and application that we can apply to ourselves from their situation. So, take for instance their desire to honor the Lord with their marriages and not intermarrying with these people of the land. Think about all the various texts that we have in the New Testament where God has given us much more clear instruction about what Christian marriages should look like. Think of Ephesians 5, 1 Peter chapter 3, Colossians. Chapter 3. These texts highlight that the institution of marriage is supposed to be one that represents the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's supposed to represent Christ's love for his church. Husbands serving their wives selflessly and submitting themselves to the Lord and dying to self, honoring that same covenant relationship that Christ had for his bride. Wives following their husbands in an honorable way, respecting them in a spirit of gentleness. Singles pursuing these types of relationships as well. So just like these in Nehemiah 10 who are desirous to set themselves apart from the peoples of the lands. As a committed people to the Lord in their homes, let it be a reminder for us to do the same today. Those that are married, are you practically investing in those relationships? Are you reading through these texts like Ephesians 5? And are you challenging yourself? Are you looking at Christ's love for his church husbands? And are you seeking to honor your wife in the same way? Are you leading selflessly for their good and for their glory? Or are you pursuing selfish desires? Wives, do you have a gentle and humble spirit as you follow the leadership of your husband? Do you seek to honor him to his face and to your friends outside of the home? Do you seek to represent Christ well with your marriages? Let us be those that are set apart in our marriages as well. Take for instance as well their view and their vow to honor the Lord by being a committed people to worshiping and supporting the temple ministry. Now we're in the New Covenant and there is no temple, there's no building that we're supposed to maintain like God's people were supposed to do financially in the Old Testament. But there are passages in the New Testament that speak the way that believers should support the work of the ministry in the New Testament. They're supposed to support the work of the church, the body, the new temple, what the old temple pointed forward to. Think of the way that there are specific passages that say that they're supposed to honor financially those that work in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9 says this. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's looking back on the Old Testament. But notice what Paul says. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Let me just say that for especially the size of our body here at our church, you guys are so generous to my wife and I financially. So please don't hear me talk about finances as a ploy to get a Christmas bonus or a raise on the new year. But perhaps you're here and you didn't realize that the scripture commanded you to support the ministry in a financial way. If you aren't one that supports the ministry financially, I encourage you to go and consider some of these these texts that I just looked at. And if you are, I pray that you would continue to do so, that you would pray that you would have a giving spirit and a generous heart. Let me also encourage you to support the ministry of the gospel in other ways. I have several friends who I went to school with who at one time were in ministry and are no longer in ministry. Just this last week, I had a friend resign from the pastorate. And as I heard from him, he said that the reason why was that his family was burnt out. They were isolated. They were lonely. I'm so grateful for those of you who show so much love for me and my family and appreciation. Your prayers and your love for my family, the tangible ways that you express that love mean more to me than you will ever know. Being a pastor is a great joy, but it is also a great burden. Continue to pray for your pastors. Lift them up daily. Encourage them. Seek to encourage them. Finally, think about their commitment to honor their Lord by walking in obedience to his word. The start of their vow, that was what they vowed to do, was they, they vowed to be a people that honored the Lord and kept every single rule and statute of the covenant. They covenant themselves together, they gather together, they walk in accountability together, seeking to be a people of God's word. They wanted to walk in obedience to it, they wanted God's word to dictate everything about their lives. What about us? Is that what we desire most? Do we want our marriages to be those that are dictated by God's word? Our work habits to be dictated by God's word? Our relationships to be influenced by God's word? Our decisions to be influenced by what God says in His scriptures? The way that we spend money, is that what we want to be influencing our spending? Have we committed our lives to walking in obedience like them? I pray that as we think back on Nehemiah chapter 10, that we would humble ourselves, that we'd be accountable to one another, that we would seek to honor the Lord in all of these ways and more. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for this example of a people who are desirous to honor you to uphold your law, to see it as good and as gracious. Father, I pray that you would encourage us by their faithfulness. Lord, that we too would be a people that would desire your word, that we would seek to honor it, that we would seek to live by it. God, that we would be a people set apart in our marriages, that our marriages would be a light to this broken world that is so darkened by sin. Father, that we would be a people that are trusting you as they trusted you with the provisions in the Sabbath. Father, that we would be a people that look out for the needs of one another. That we'd seek to not just be there in, in word, but in deed for those that are suffering around us. God, we pray that you would unite us as your people. God, that we would be a people committed to you in all things. and We ask these things in Jesus' name.